this series. I'm expectant and excited to, uh, to start this with everyone. Um, it's a lot that we read this morning, and uh, we, get to, uh, we get to spend the next seven weeks just working through uh, the book of Colossians. Seven weeks uh, working through four chapters. You might say, why would we take that long to go through that book? Uh, and I would say we could probably take 14 or 18 weeks to go through Colossians. Uh, so we're going to uh, have a jam-packed um, summarized session in the next seven weeks. Uh, but we're going to be able to see the beauty of the scriptures just laid out before us as we do this. And so let me just give you the approach. Uh, I'm going to start with the approach of kind of how we're going to do this next seven weeks. Uh, and then we're going to go right into the letter. And this morning, be a little bit different. I want to give you some context on what's happening in the letter, not just jump in to preach it. I want you to know, kind of have a bearing straight on what's happening, who's writing this, and why did Paul write this letter? Um, why, why did Paul write this letter? Um, knowing that the epistles, like Colossians and Ephesians and all the books that you might be familiar with are really just letters written by, uh, a lot of them written by Paul to a church uh, at a certain time for a certain reason um, with something specific going on around them. And so we want to be able to place ourselves in that context so we can receive um, from what God has for us. And so the approach is really simple, taking seven weeks to work through this, kind of verse by verse, passage by passage. We will not be touching everything even in today's passage. Um, and uh, we won't be touching every single word and every single verse, uh, but trying to get to the heart of, of each passage as Paul wants us to see them. And really just working through kind of a, a really simple step, looking at the verse, interpreting what it means, and then applying that to our lives. Like, what's the implication? Really straightforward. Looking at the verse that we land on, interpreting it, understanding what is Paul saying here, what is God trying to say through this scripture, and then receiving it for implication for our lives. Like, how does this, what does that imply? What does that mean for me? And how do I work this out? That is what we want to do um, in these next few weeks. And just teaching whatever comes up. So you're going to find now as we do this kind of teaching that like whatever comes up, we're going to, we're going to, teach through. And so sometimes, because Paul is sporadic, I feel like I'm so seen by him that he's just sporadic in, in his letters and he goes from one topic to another that we're going to just follow his train of thought uh, with this understanding and premise. That we would, and maybe you struggle with reading the scriptures and you're like, I don't know how to piece together all this stuff that they're saying. It's really confusing. Let's just all kind of gather around the same focal point and trusting that God's spirit has spoken through Paul for this letter to reach us today to speak to us. Amen. We believe that is God's inspired word that all scriptures breathed out by God. That Paul was writing this letter to a certain place, a certain church, but also to us today. He might not have known that, but God used that to speak a revelatory word so that we could receive truths about Jesus and life and God today for us. And so we're going to dissect that as much as we can. Some things are just for the Colossians, but we can... Uh, see what God would want to say for us. So let me give you just an overview of the book. How many of you have read through Colossians before? Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, it's a short book, one of my favorite books, but uh, it's packed full of things. And just landing, up, landing us on where it is is really important. Um, start out, it was definitely written by Paul, if you didn't know that. He, he introduces himself in the beginning of the book as the Apostle Paul who's writing this but uh, there's more to know about the book than just who wrote it. It's really important to understand, uh, like, the date and the context. And this is really beautiful. 
a lot of scholars think that Colossians was written around 60 to 62 AD, which you might think that's not an important date. Uh, but I want you to see the reference to how close that is to the resurrection. That Jesus was dated the resurrected on 30 to 33 AD. So what that means is that there are some people that are still alive at this very moment that have seen Jesus while Paul is writing this letter. It's not far removed. It is not thousands of years later or hundreds of years later. It is in the context of people still alive that their own eyes saw the person of Jesus. How amazing. How amazing that it's not some distant, like, I hear, she say, he say kind of thing. But it is purely in the context of what Jesus walked around. Paul and Timothy wrote this. Uh, Timothy was uh, Paul's kind of um, assistant, and he trained them up. And we see that in verse 1 and 2, that Paul and Timothy were together writing this. It's interesting to note that Paul's writing this in a prison. Come on. Like he is in prison at house arrest in Rome at the time of writing this. He's in prison at the house arrest in Rome writing this. And that a lot of people say that Paul was writing Ephesus and the, the book of uh, Ephesians and the book of Philemon and Colossians all at the same time. And he gave it out to uh, someone to deliver to these churches. So he's thinking about all these places. And why was he writing Ephesians the same time as Colossians? Because Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey, west coast of that, near the water, is 100 miles from Ephesus. We think about the book of Ephesians, and we love it, and there's beautiful grace and justification and all these things. But that was a real city with real people, just 100 miles from Colossae. These are real people living in this rim of modern-day Turkey, where it would be Asia Minor back then. And that is where they are placed at. That is where the, the region of um, Laodicea and all the churches we read about the seven churches in Revelation were placed there. And Paul had traveled around um, preaching the gospel. You can go to the next slide, Nathan. See just the kind of the flow of how this worked out. Super uh, beneficial to slow down to see this, to put ourselves in place. Now it's good to note, Paul didn't start the church in Colossians. Oftentimes, he's writing a letter to a church like I would be um, if I went to go start a church and then I traveled away that I would write a letter to encourage them. No Instagram, no Facebook text message. So he had to write a letter to encourage and bless them and to instruct them. But Paul did not start the church in Colossae. The scriptures tell us that Epaphras, Paul says in this chapter, is the one who preached the gospel. They heard the gospel from this guy named Epaphras. Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus when he was there for three years teaching. So Paul preaches the gospel in Ephesus. Epaphras hears it and goes and shares the gospel to the people in Colossians. Now, why does Paul write this letter to this church he had no connection with? Because false teaching started to rise among the people. Early church, new church, let me tell you, probably the size of the church was like a house church or two at this time. Very small. We're not thinking about mega churches. We're not thinking about large structured networks. We're thinking about a house church the size of maybe 12 to 25, maybe 50 max, depending on how long it took for the start to get to the letter where Paul's at. So small group of people. And some false teaching started to arise, as we will see, among this new church that's just starting to form their view of Jesus, just starting to understand the gospel. And then all these things start to come into play, making them question the gospel message. This false teaching that we will see starts to undermine faith in Jesus, and they're trying to add on other things to him. 
And so Epaphras goes to, to, to Paul and gives him an update. He goes to where Paul's at and says, Paul, we got a problem. I, I preached to this church and they love Jesus and, and they, they started following him. But now this false teaching is coming in and it's twisting the hearts and pulling people away from the gospel. And Paul is just who Paul is. He takes that information and writes this letter. That is the context of what this letter is. He's writing this letter to correct, to combat any false teaching that would pull them away from Jesus and also to encourage them to mature further into Jesus. And I want you to see the overlap that what they're going through and what we're going through right now is not that different. If you haven't noticed, you are bombarded with media and news and philosophy and agendas that are competing for your faith in Jesus. Yes or yes? Yes, the answer is yes. TikTok, Twitter, Fox News, CNN, your person, Jordan Peterson, a new book, yoga, mysticism, new age, whatever it is that you want to say that people are going to for advice and wisdom, that thing, that thing, those things are competing for your allegiance to Jesus and pulling you and threatening you to trust in something other than Jesus. And so what Paul did back then is say, don't look at those things, look at Jesus, he's sufficient, is what he would say to us today. So just in case you're thinking, well, this is an old letter for problems that aren't involved in us. This is for us today. This is for us today to get the clarity around who Jesus is and why we need him. This is what one commentator said about the false teaching. Really interesting. The false teachers were apparently suggesting that Christians needed to go beyond the gospel that Epaphras had taught the Colossians in order to experience spiritual fullness. They were teaching, yeah, stay, stay with Jesus, but, but Jesus plus something. You need to add something to Jesus to be spiritually full. That was the message that the Colossians were getting intermingled with. And Paul comes to this church with a letter and says, it's not Jesus plus something equals like everything. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You don't need to add anything to Jesus to be sufficient for your spiritual and faith walk. Jesus, in Jesus, you will find everything. And that's the major theme of this book. There are 95 verses in Colossians. And catch this, I did this by by hand, which I don't know why, because I could have probably Googled it. But looking up the references to Jesus, there are 60 direct references to the person of Jesus in 95 verses. (laughs) Paul has a message here. I want you to see Jesus at every angle and every new way. I want you to see the person and work of Jesus and learn who he is and learn what he has for you and learn what he wants and learn who he is and all those things so you would take in the centrality of Jesus. The main thing that Paul would have is that the emphasis of Jesus being supreme and beautiful is meant to demonstrate sufficiency. That Jesus is the source for all our spiritual and relational needs. You might believe that today, but as we work through this next few weeks, I hope the Lord would clarify and maybe reveal some things to you that you are trying to lean on for spiritual nourishment that aren't in Jesus. That we just clarify where is it that we are trying to add things to the risen Jesus because that is going to lead to frustration, not to fruitfulness. It's going to lead to frustration, not joy. We want to know who Jesus is for us. So here's the outline today that we will work through. Uh, as as Nee read, there's 14 verses in this one section. We'll probably only work through about eight or nine of them. 
but verses 1 to 2, as you read, hopefully you have your Bibles open as we work through this. Um, I want you to see what I'm seeing and, and, and track along with us. But verses 1 to 2 is just Paul's greeting. Actually, the whole first chapter uh, into almost verse uh, 29, the whole first chapter is seen as an intro. So if you think I go long, the Apostle Paul had the first chapter of his letter as an intro, introducing himself and introducing his agenda and introducing his outline of what he wanted to talk about. And then chapter 2 and 3 is the content. And then chapter 4 is just greetings. <laughs> like, he's like, let me just come real quick, put in a few things about Jesus, and then dump a whole bunch of stuff about this in two chapters, and then I'm out. But he was slowing down to process with the church. This is what I want you to have some foundation about as he starts in the book. So verses 1 to 2 is a greeting. Verses 3 to 8 that we'll look at is, is kind of a Thanksgiving update. This is what Epaphras told me about you, and I praise God for that. And then verses 9 to 12 uh, that we'll look at the second section is just Paul praying for them, asking for fruit. First section is a thanksgiving, a prayer. Second section is praying for more of this fruit to happen. So let's jump into verse 3 and see what Paul says. This is the word of the Lord from Epaphras talking to Paul. Before we read this, let's just take a moment to slow down and pray again before we jump in. Father, we, we want to just hear from you and see you this morning. We trust, Lord, that your word is sufficient. We trust that you have chosen to spoke through your word to all people for the last 2,000 years and even longer to reveal your character and your plan, to reveal Jesus. And so this morning, God, uh, would you help us not to think about the preference, not to think about the style, not to think about what verses we're saying and what verses we skipped and think about ideas. Help us just to receive the word of Jesus for us today. As the word of God for our moment in life right now. Would you build us up, Lord, in faith and maturity? And we leave encouraged that we heard from the living God. If you want to hear from the living God, would you say amen with me? Amen. Amen. I believe God wants to speak to us. Verse 3 is where we are in this section. Paul gets this update from Epaphras. So Epaphras goes to Paul and Paul tells or is receiving updates on what is going on. In verse 3 he says, man, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Why is Paul thanking God for them? He says a couple things. Number one, we thank God for you in our prayers because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Epaphras told us of your faith in Christ Jesus. Epaphras told us that you had love for all the saints all the people of God. And Epaphras told us that you had love in the Spirit. Faith in Christ Jesus and a clear sense of love. I love how simple this thanksgiving and this prayer is. The temptation for you and I in this moment is to overlook this, to think, yeah, that's cute, faith and love. Let's get on to like the real doctrine and stuff we need to know. But I want you just to see how pivotal these two things are in a church and in your life. Faith is not an abstract, in this context, faith's not an abstract general faith. He's not saying, I'm so thankful that Paul told me that you had this nebulous general faith in like a God. No, he says, I am thankful that you have faith in Jesus. That's important. 
It's not abstract. It's not general. But it's a conviction, catch this, that Jesus is both real and true. That's what faith is. It's a conviction. You're not, faith is not this, let me just leap out here into the darkness. No, faith is walking into the light. We think faith is walking into a darkness where we just have to like believe. That's not true because God has revealed himself in the scriptures so that we would have light and revelation and walk into the truth. So when someone says, what do you, why do you have faith? You're not saying, what's well, just a blind leap. No, no, no. A blind leap means you never had anything to go off of. You have a lot to go off of. You have a lot to go off of. Your faith is built on a surety of a message that has lasted 2,000 plus years for billions of people and is resoundingly true in all ways. Your faith in Jesus is built on revelation and truth. And his conviction that Jesus is both real, he's real, and he's true. What he says, he wasn't just a real character. He is who he says he was. And what does he say he was? God. That's your faith. Your faith is not in this abstract idea that there's a God up there, his name is Jesus, but I don't really know who he is. Your faith is in a real person. That was God wrapped in the flesh who came down to save sinful humanity from the wrath of God and pour out his presence to build a new kingdom. That is Jesus. And this Jesus is the only true object of saving faith. Paul makes that clear in all his letters. Jesus is the only true object of saving faith. You're not saved by believing there's a God out there. You're not saved by believing there's spiritual realm out there. You're saved through what? No, access no other name under what? Heaven by which we'd be saved. No other name. The message of the gospel is exclusive. It's inclusive, which means it's for everyone and everyone's invited in to believe, but it's exclusive at the, at the point saying it's only through Jesus. Anyone's able to come and receive this free life, but it's only through Jesus you get this free life. Re real life found in Jesus. He says, I praise God for you. And I just want to say, church, again and again, I am thankful and I am proud of you. I'm thankful for your faith in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful that as we gather, we are uh, a church that um, doesn't have a whole bunch of fancy stuff, not big numbers, but the people in here, you, those online, there's real faith in the real Jesus that I see. And that is something to praise God for. But it's not just faith. Paul says, I'm also thanking God that you have love for all the saints. We want to be intentional in studying the Bible, that there's connections with everything happening here. That he doesn't just separate faith over here and then love over here. There's a reason why Paul says, I'm thankful for your faith. And he's saying, I'm thankful for your love for all the saints. Why? Because that faith in Jesus led them to love the brothers and sisters. Your faith in Jesus has stirred up a fresh love for the people of God. If you have faith in who Jesus is, there is a new sense of conviction and wonder and, and, and compelling power around loving the people around you. And it's not just like cheap love. It's generous, sacrificial love for the people of God. That's the primary fruit of faith. If you're wondering, do I have faith in Jesus? Or, yes, I know who Jesus is, but how do I really know? First John says, you know that you believe in the Son of God when you love your brothers and sisters. And love is... The fruit. Not how much you know, not how much you tithe, not how much you come to church. Love. Chris, that's too simple. You tried loving someone lately? Love. 
Love is the fruit. May we be a church that, that counts the metrics, the real metrics, as faith in Jesus and love for our neighbor. Those are the metrics. I love people in the seats. I love money in the bank. I love all that stuff. We, we want to see salvations too. But the metrics that God looks down upon and is pleased of church is faith in his son and love for your brother. And we can do that. It's hard, but it's clear. We can do that. Faith in Christ and love for our brother. Don't overcomplicate it. I get confused. I hated school. I'm bad at it. I took summer school for math. I can't really add a lot of stuff together. But I can, I can figure out faith in Jesus and love for our brothers and sisters. And I want us to continue to make sure we're counting the real metrics. Are we trusting in Christ for all things? And are we loving our neighbors like Jesus? If we are, then God is pleased, he's glorified, and there will be traction in the kingdom. Amen? Faith in Jesus and love for all saints. Now here's a question that we should ask. Where does this come from? Where does the faith and love come from? Like, where, where is that coming from? Paul has a very clear answer that I, when I read it for the first time, I don't know how long ago I read it, Colossians, I was, I was stunned by his answer. Stunned by his answer because it's not what we would imagine would be the source of faith and love. Check out verse 5. He says this, see, I'm thankful for your faith and your love. He says, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Whoa. I'm thankful for your faith in Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul's saying you have a hope in Jesus in the future, in heaven, that is guarded and kept safe. And that hope in Jesus that no one can touch or rob, that hope has spurred on faith and love. That has spurred on faith and love. And I want you to know, church, gospel hope should never cause us to escape the world but to engage it more. We're not thinking like, we got a blessed assurance so I can let this world burn because I'm going there. No, Paul had the connection here in the scriptures that a hope in the future, the secure and blessed hope freed the Colossian church to risk in the present. See, when you know you have your life secured and good in, in the future, you can live generously in the present. You can risk, even risk love, risk money, risk safety in the present. But listen, look at me. If this is your only hope, if this life is the only thing you're betting on and counting in, then of course you're trying to keep everything for yourself. You, Christian who believes in Jesus, you have a better future in heaven with eternal riches and joy with the presence of God for eternity that no one can take. You can risk something now. Because when you lose something here, it's actually a, a means to gain something in heaven. Jesus says when you give, you get rewarded. When you love, you get rewarded. When you sacrifice, you get rewarded. Losing is gaining in the kingdom. You don't have to live with a closed fist. I'm not going to talk to this person. I'm not going to show up to this event. I'm not going to do this thing. I'm not going to give or risk or go to that city or go to that country to preach the gospel. Like that is not the attitude of a Christian. A Christian is I look at the hope of heaven and I'm free to give and love and to believe everything that Jesus has for me. I want to engage in there, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He goes on to say this, not just the hope laid up for you in heaven, in verse 5. Uh, next slide. He goes on to say a couple of things that you've heard the word of truth. 
That's where the hope came from. Epaphras preached to you this hope in a beautiful heaven, inspired you to love people, and you've heard the word of truth, the gospel. You've understood the grace of God and truth, and you've learned it from Epaphras. When we study the Bible, church, we want to slow down to notice key words, repetitive themes, ideas that Paul is talking to. And this should trigger a, a, an alarm in our, in our minds. Heard truth, understood truth, learned. Paul is trying to teach and communicate something here. He's trying to communicate what it means to receive the gospel. N.T. Wright says this beautifully. God does not push his saving power into operation by some automatic or magic process which bypasses the consciousness of its recipients. Paul describes the effect of Epaphras' preaching in Colossae in terms not of an emotional reaction, nor even of people accepting Christ into their hearts, what does he say? But of hearing the truth and understanding it. Paul saying that the way you received the gospel wasn't this just this pure emotional experience or just saying, I raise my hand, Jesus is in my heart. He's saying, no, what actually really took place, if you want to break it down, was you heard the word of truth and you understood it. Heard the word of truth and you understood it. This makes me think of Matthew 13 when Jesus says this. This is hopefully going to open some eyes to see how important it is to understand what we hear. Matthew, uh, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is teaching about the parable of a sower and a seed. And he says this, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not, what? Understand it. Does it say, does not feel good about it? Does it say, does not raise their hand in church service? No, does not understand it. What, the, what happens? The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Wow. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one will snatch away that seed so it will not grow and bear fruit. I know God is the God of our emotions, and we want to uh, allow God to speak to us through his emo our emotions. And I believe God does speak to you through your imagination, your thoughts, and your emotions. He may very well. But one of the primary ways we receive the truth of the gospel is through understanding it. Spiritually understanding and receiving. It might not logically make sense to the world, but you are all here if you believe in Jesus. Because at some level, you had some spiritual understanding of what Jesus was offering. And you said, that's good, I want it. You didn't go, well, that doesn't make sense, but sounds good to me. <laughs> Sign me up for a life of sacrifice. Just want to give my money to an organization. I could be doing anything I want, but I'm going to go to church on Sundays. No, you said, man, that makes sense. I, I understand. It doesn't make all the sense in the world because it's so different than the world, but it makes enough sense that I understand it and I want it and it's good. Here's what I want to say. It's not enough to have a vague awareness of God's word. We must work to comprehend it. You cannot just think, I have a vague awareness of what, you might have believed the gospel and received it and understood it, but now you might be going through life super confused on what the scriptures say. Trust me, it's okay, I get confused often too. It's not a problem that you get confused with what the Bible says. The problem is when we stop and saying it's not worth trying to understand. God wants you to say, I'm worth trying to understand. Is God worth your effort to think? Is God worth your effort? Or do you think that revelation is opposed to effort? 
because it is not. Revelation is something that God gives. But you know what? I, I find in my own life that God reveals his, his truth to me when I'm working to understand it. I have never, I can't remember ever giving, getting super like clear revelation from God while I'm like on the couch sinning or just not thinking about Jesus. Like I'm over here just being passive and God's like, download, here's all your answers. It's always been in a time when I'm trying to understand it. It might not be me and like the Greek words figuring out, but I'm thinking. I'm giving him my heart and my mind and my time to try to figure things out. Thinking is not anti-spiritual. Thinking is not anti-spiritual. If you are opposed, if you have a spectrum where you think spirit over here, thinking over here, that's, that's false dichotomy. We don't live by it. Thinking is a means by which God uses to reveal spiritual things to you. Because you know what? God made your mind. He made your heart and he made your mind. He wants to speak to you. So don't think that when you're logically deducing something, you're being anti-spiritual. Everything is spiritual when you are a Christian. When you are in the, in the spirit, everything is spiritual. In fact, there are so many verses about renewing your mind, being transformed by your mind, using your mind. There's a part in the gospel later on, not in Colossians, but a different letter, where uh, Paul says, yeah, this is confusing what I just wrote, but think over it, and the spirit will give you a revelation. He's like, yeah, I know this is confusing, but um, think, and the God will reveal to you. Guess what? The verses, verses 3 through 8 in the Greek it's all one sentence. These five verses we're looking at is one long sentence. That's confusing, Paul. But Paul knows if you work to understand it, there are treasures galore. I want to be a people that when we look at the Bible, we say, man, I want to know and understand what God says because there is so much rich treasure there. Rich treasure there. That we would have the fruits of the gospel because we've understood the gospel, we have faith in Jesus, that we know he's real and true, that we have love for our neighbors, all because we heard it and we work to understand it. And your working to understand is not apart and separate from God also at the same time, opening your eyes. They both happen at the same time. Colossians 9. That's verses 3 through 8. He's talking about Epaphras. He's praying, thanksgiving to them. But then he switches a little bit, almost like reverses it. By says this, he says the same thing, but now he says it reversed in a prayer. Verses 9. And so from the day we heard, he says, from the day we heard, the day that Epaphras came to us and said something, we heard we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. We're asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and, again, in understanding. Paul is trying to make a point. And the number one thing he's praying for in this new church, I pray, church, not ceasing to pray for this, that you would know God's will. That you would know God's will. You know, I'm very convicted when I see the, the, the prayers of Paul. If you look through the epistles, Paul usually always starts with a prayer or prays throughout the beginning of the uh, epistle to a church, Ephesus or whatever. And his prayers aren't like protect this person from like travel mercies and this thing from their sickness. And, like he, he prays about that sometimes. But the primary, that's not a bad prayer, but there's a greater prayer, and that is spiritual depth and insight into who God is. That Paul's primary agenda wasn't just trying to make sure people were safe. Primary, primary, because that was God's agenda he could do. 
his primary agenda was making sure people understood who God was and who Jesus was and how to live out that in real ways. And he prays, the number one thing he prays for this new church, that they would understand the will of the Lord. Now, here, let me just break this, break this down. God's will is not a job, a city, a person, a college, or a time. God's will is not a job. I know often, one of the, one of the most repeat, repeated questions I have received as being a pastor is, is, what is God's will for my life? It's a great question that we should search out for and figure out. But I want to help some of us today to understand that, that there is two kind of like ways of seeing God's will. There's God's sovereign will that I'm just sorry you're not going to understand. <laughs> you're just not going to get that. Like we think about things like happening right now in Ukraine and Russia. And we go, God, is that your will? What is happening? And we don't have an answer to that question besides knowing that God does all that he pleases, the Bible says. And we know that God is sovereign. And we know that God uses all things and he's in control. So we take that and we map it on circumstances. But I can't tell you what God's specific will is in that moment. His sovereign will eludes us. It's not something that we can wrap our heads around. And that's not what Paul wants these people to figure out. He's not saying, I want you to figure out what job to take, what city to move into, what person to marry. They probably didn't have college back then, but what, what school to go to. Pa Paul's not saying, I want you to figure those things out. That's divination. That's looking at a crystal ball and trying to see your future. Paul never says, look at that. Paul says, I want you to know a different kind of will. God's prescribed will. God's revealed will. This is God's revealed will. Not a job, a city, but your gratitude. Your holiness and obedience. Your desire and motivations. How you treat people. You living more like Jesus. When the Bible talks about God's will, it's always in connection to character, not really context. It's always in connection to kind of the how and the why, not the where. See, if God told us where to go and what job, the thing, now does the Spirit, can the Spirit lead you to a certain person, a certain job? Yes. But Paul's not praying that you would know that kind of will right now. That's not bad. God does lead us to certain people and places and things. But he is saying, I want you to know, when I think about figuring out what God wants from me, I always try to start with the, with the greatest point of clarity and work backwards. You don't start with, the, with amb ambiguity and try to work the clarity. You work with clarity and work backwards. So if you want to know God's will for your life on what job, figure out first what God's prescribed will is for your life. And I would say this. And encourage you if you're at a stage where you're wondering God's will, that I'm speaking for God, so I'm, there's reverence in this moment. That God is more concerned about what you do in your job than what job you have. Does that make sense? Does God care about what job you take? Yes. But God is not pleased when you take the right quote-unquote job, but you act like a Gentile inside there. God is more concerned about your character and Christ's likeness and sanctification and love and mission in that job than trying to figure out the right job. I'm not sure if you're going to figure out exactly the right path for your life, but you certainly can get God's revelation on how to act in any moment. And that is what God wants to reveal to us today, is his revealed will. I'm not sure maybe what door to take, Lord, so I'm going to trust your spirit, and if you shut it, you shut it. But I know I need to love my wife. I know I need to be sexually pure. I know I need to be grateful. That's, those, those verses and those things are tied exactly to the words of God's will in the scriptures. 
First Thessalonians says that God's will is your sanctification. That we would look more like Jesus. Paul is not praying for the church to know some special direction. But to know how God wants them to live. And this is so crucial. God's will is his revealed purposes in the scriptures. So we're not guessing. It's in the scriptures and is fully realized and actualized in Jesus. The point of, of clearest revelation for understanding God's will is looking at Jesus. If you're fuzzy and foggy around what to do and, and you're not thinking about what job to take or whatever, but, but how do I behave, how do I act, look no further than the person and the work of Jesus. Remember, he says in verse 10, that I want you to know the will of God in what all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's confusing, right? Like how do we know that? What is, how do we get spiritual wisdom and understanding? Well, Paul says in verse 3, chapter 2, in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know what that means? Jesus is sufficient for you understanding and knowing what you need to know in life. It doesn't mean that we don't learn math or psychology or like learn about history. That's not what the scripture is saying. But if you want to know what God has for your life, if you want to know the purposes of Jesus and the motivations of God's heart, look no further than Jesus. Look no further than Jesus. You don't need to add anything to Jesus. You don't need Jesus plus Jordan Peterson. You don't need Jesus plus TikTok influencer or Fox News or CNN. Like Jesus, Paul is saying, is sufficient enough for you to know God's revealed will for your life. If you're wondering, what should I do? Christ, Christ is. If you're trying to figure out how God wants you to live outside of or in addition to Jesus, we're in error. If you're trying to add something to Jesus and God, I want to know your will, but I need to go outside of it and talk to these people, figure out these things. We want community, we want wisdom, but there's a reason why Paul says all of the wisdom and knowledge is in Christ. I think God is waiting for us to go, will you take me up at that offer and believe me that Jesus is sufficient. Because the devil wants you to be tempted that no, no, he's not sufficient, you're going to need some other stuff. And I just want to be foolish enough to believe that in Christ is everything I need for my spiritual growth. In Christ is everything I need to understand how to live my life today practically. Practically. So what's the purpose and result of this then? What's the purpose then of knowing God's will? If it's more about my sanctification, if it's more about me looking and living like Jesus, and that's what Paul is praying for, then what's the result? Is it me just to know so I have knowledge. This is what Paul says. I'm laying a plane around this. He says, once you know the will of God, if you're filled with the, the, the wisdom and the knowledge of God's will, this will mean that you'll be able to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Lord. You'll live a life worthy of the Lord and so fully please him as you bear fruit in every good work and grow up in the knowledge of God. Let me ask you a question. Who wants to live a life worthy of the Lord? Who wants to bear fruit? Who wants to be fully pleasing to God? Who wants to increase in the knowledge of God? Okay, great. Paul is saying the way to go about that is to be filled with the knowledge of his will. I love that we're going to be rubbed up against how simple Colossians is to our life. Challenging, yes. 
But he's trying to uncomplicate what they're trying to make complicated. And he says to us today, if you know and are filled with God's will, if you're filled with how to live your spiritual life out in Christ, and you know who Jesus is, and you look to him for your guidance on how to behave and how to live properly, then you will live a life worthy of the Lord. And you will bear fruit in all that you do. And you will be fully pleasing to him. When you understand God's will, you can live God's way. The simplicity is so startling. When you understand God's will, you can live God's way. And when you live God's way, you experience God's blessing. That's what Paul is trying to pray over the church. I want you to know God's will in Christ. So let me just make it really practical. If you are spending more of your energy and time than prayers, trying to figure out what person to marry and what school to go to and what job to take, and again, not bad prayers, but if you're spending more time trying to uncover that, then you're actually worrying about how to live a loving and selfless and grateful life in Christ, then I would switch those. And it just might be that when you start living in the pathway of Jesus, he will guide you to where to go. Wow. When you're living in the pathway of Jesus, he might just guide you exactly where you need to go. Galatians says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If you live in the Spirit, knowing and trusting in Christ, receiving his sufficiency for you as everything you need is in him, then I think God's going to guide you to exactly where you need to go. God is honored. People are blessed. And we are mature. I want God to be honored in my life in this church. I want people to be blessed around us. And I want us to mature and to bear gospel fruit. And instead of trying to think of all of these programs and things we need to do, God, Paul says, just start with knowing how God wants you to live in Christ. Just, just get your master's degree in that. Try, not try to advance something else. That is where you can plant your flag down to say, I know what God wants me to do. And maybe today you would say, I don't know God's will that much, Chris. Like, I'm kind of fuzzy. I'm a newer Christian. I didn't grow up in church. So the idea of, like, knowing how God wants me to live is foggy. I would say maybe for you, you need to have a fresh devotion to the scriptures. And I want to come alongside you. This church does in teaching you how to read the scriptures daily, just little by little, so you can see what God wants for your life. But some of you are not foggy around God's will. You know God's will. You're just not obeying what you know. And that's not con condemnation or anything. That's just reality that a lot of us know God's will. We're just not doing it. And I would ask for you, maybe your devotion doesn't need to be fully into the scriptures because you're already there. Your devotion needs to be, and we're having a meeting about this after coincidence, that your devotion would be in really investing in a few close relationships in a local body, this church, if this is your church, so that people can help you live out what you know. God's will is revealed in the scriptures, and then the accountability and the empowerment is through his spirit by his people. And you need both. And some of us know all the stuff that we need to be doing, but we're just not doing it. And we need some people to love and we need to come alongside us and say, hey, Hey, how are you doing on this? Hey, can I check in on you? Hey, can I pray for you? Hey, can I encourage you? Hey, can I walk with you in this so we can obey what the Lord has for us? And I promise you, you will see some beautiful fruit as you submit to what God wants for your life. Here's a summary of this, this passage, this chapter. 
verse 3 to 8, he's, Paul is saying the same thing. Understanding the hope of the gospel leads to true faith and generous love. Like Paul thanks the church and thanks God for understanding the gospel. And then he flips it and prays for the church that knowing God's will revealed in Jesus leads us to living a fruitful life that honors God. I want to end with these questions. I just want you to do some self-evaluation for a moment. Um, you can have the worship team start to make their way up here. Some questions. Number one, does your life appear to be fruitless? You're not telling anyone else. Just you and the Lord. Like, can you look at your, there might, there might be seasons of fruitfulness and fruitlessness. That's fine. Where are you now? Does your life feel like it's fruitless and dry? Do you lack faith and love? And are you confused on how to live? If you answer yes to any of those questions, I think one of the questions you have to face today is what has been your source? What has been your source of motivation, your source of information, your source of direction? Is it the world? Is it yourself? And I'm going to be the person that just beats this over and over, my heart and our hearts. Is it God's truth revealed in Christ, shown in the scriptures? We're going to think, we're going to keep things very simple. That we trust that God's sufficiency in the scriptures and the person of Jesus is enough, that he would empower us by the spirit, place us in the local body so we can live this out. That's the church. That's the gospel. That's the kingdom. And if we're fruitless and we're lacking love and faith and confused on how to live, then God would say, don't stop, stop trying to add on all these things. Come to me. And here's just the practice. That, that you would make Jesus this morning and this next season your clear focus for understanding how to live. That you would make Jesus your clear focus. Like really, if you're stuck with a decision, how do I live in this moment? How do I act? How do I behave in this situation? And you wouldn't look to pop psychology. You wouldn't look to your neighbor at first. You would look fully and firstly at Christ and say, how did Jesus live? Remember, as disciples, the goal of discipleship is to become like your teacher, your master. And we're trying to become like Jesus. And that is what the Spirit is trying to do. That he says he's conforming us, but to the likeness and the image of Christ. So everything the Spirit of God is doing in your life movement, church, everything the Spirit of God is doing in your life right now is in some way conforming you more to look like the risen Jesus. Because he's the prototype of the new humanity. And you're a new creation. And so he's catching you up practically to where you already are positionally. You're positionally in Christ forgiven. And there's a slow grind. Trust me, it's slower than I want it to be all the time. But it's a continuous grind where God brings me to where I used to be, to where I need to be in Christ. And God wants you to experience that, that change this morning. Would you stand with me? I think one of the things that I struggled with when I was writing this message and thinking through it, besides the fact that there's just so much that we could talk about, is this, tempt is this struggle and wrestle to keep it simple versus, like, make it complicated. And I feel a little bit uncomfortable for how simple it could be at times, and I think that needs to kind of confront us that the gospel of Jesus is very simple. 
it's complex in its complexities, like the depth and spirituality and mystery, but it is simple. That God came in the form of a fully human, but fully God, Jesus, the person, full, flesh, wrapped, lived the perfect life, died in the place of sinful humanity so that his righteousness can be transferred to us because he took our sinfulness. And that we receive that by faith and then trust him as our guide and king for the rest of our life. The simple gospel. Would we just commit afresh today? Would you close your eyes? And will we just commit afresh this morning? Just a small thing. I'm not asking you to do this huge thing. Just a small devotion. Would you just say to God right now in your own way, in your own language, Jesus, I commit afresh to you. I trust you to be sufficient for my every spiritual need. Would you tell the Lord that this morning? I trust you, Jesus, to be sufficient for my every spiritual need. Just take a moment to communicate that to the Lord. Yes, Lord, that is our heart. <laughs> Simple, just like childlike faith. Everything is in you, Christ, all the wisdom, and all of the knowledge. Next week, we're going to be blown back by, by who you are and everything is climaxing in you. And so, Lord, we just want to say, Jesus, we trust you afresh this morning. As our king, as our brother, as our leader, as our savior, everything that's in Jesus. We are not lying when we say it's all about you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for being kind to us. We receive fresh your grace. Empower us by your spirit to live a life that is worthy of you, God, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work for your glory and for this world's good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to wrap up by singing a song, and it's going to be an acapella song. It's very simple. It's like three lines to it. You can put the lyrics on the screen if you got those, Nate. Um, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. That's the next line I think goes, because he first loved me. Super simple. So fitting for this morning. Oh, how I love Jesus, because Jesus first loved me. Let's, let's communicate our love for the Lord and receive his love fresh for us. Amen? Amen. Let's worship the Lord.